0: Welcome to Foster Strong, a podcast where America's alumni of foster care share captivating and compelling stories of what it was like growing up in the foster care system. Each episode, we explore how our time in foster care shaped us into the resilient individuals we are today.
1: everybody. This is Lino.
0: Hey, it's Maraid. Hey there, everyone. It's Carrie, and we are so excited to have you back for another episode of the Foster Strong podcast. Today, we are excited to dive into Raya's story. You know her. You love her. We've heard a little bit about her childhood growing up in foster care on a previous episode when we discussed boundaries. But today, we are really looking at a more substantive discussion about what made Raya the woman she is today. So a little background before we get started. Raya is originally from New Jersey, currently living in Washington, D.C., where she works at a social policy research firm and serves on the board of Sun Scholars, a nonprofit geared at serving former foster and adopted youth at pursuing higher education. She is a graduate from Rampo College of New Jersey and has her bachelor's degree in social work. And she previously has served as an AmeriCorps member. She also has done research and Published a child welfare policy report where she then presented it to Congress and the White House in 2019. So,
2: welcome, Raya. Hey, everyone. Um, Thanks, Carrie, for the introduction. And I'm just really happy to be back on with all of you.
1: So, how's everybody doing?
0: I was just gonna say, what a badass, Raya. I'm your friend, so sometimes being around you day to day, I forget what a cool person you are and all the things you've accomplished. Uh, so we'll just take a moment of silence for the badass that you are.
1: A moment of Thank silence. <laughs> It was, it was
0: okay, like, okay <laughs> let me just say a moment of recognition <laughs> there we go. for the badass that Raya is. I was like, should we Yeah, no, quiet? no one has to stand and be silent for 30 seconds.
1: Please, There's some no. dark times right now, okay.
0: <laughs> um, so Raya, I'm with you all the time and, you know, we hang out a lot as friends, but I often forget just what badass you are and how much you have accomplished. So reading through your bio took me back and I was like, Whoa, she's really cool. I have a cool friend. Um, and you know, you're originally from New Jersey and have been there for all of your life, I believe. Right. Um, but now you're in DC and you originally came to work in child welfare, but recently made a switch and are now at the social policy research firm. So can we just go back to maybe your decision to leave child welfare? We've talked about this a little bit on a previous episode, but give our listeners a refresh on that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's funny, I I think even as you read my bio, which I wrote several months ago, um, you know, to come to Foster Strong, I forgot all that I've did. I, oh my gosh. I forgot all that I've done. Um, especially just since graduating alone, I think. Um, and so I, I guess I can start there. So I graduated in two thousand nineteen with a bachelor's degree in social work. Um and Really, to take it back a little bit further, um, going into college, I knew that I wanted to work for the Department of Children and Families in my state. Um, It was something I knew probably from a pretty young age, I would say, at least early high school. Um, And my intentions were to go and be a caseworker and impact the lives of children like my caseworker did mine, um, who I still... Um, maintain contact with today. My adopted mom maintains contact with, um, and he's gotten a lot of these life updates that I've been able to share with you all as well. Um, and so that, that was my goal. That was my idea. I went into school and said, this is what I was going to do. And then I studied abroad, um, for a few weeks over the summer in South Africa, working on, um, community development and, um, some poverty development there. And I, I met an amazing group of people. Um, I didn't go with students from my school. I met all these individuals when I arrived, um, on the trip and, a lot of them were political science or um, more of a public policy focused uh, you know, education background. And I just thought how much more impactful that was um, for the change that I really wanted to make. I felt that for the changes that I really th- thought needed to happen, they needed to come from a really, really high up level and it just couldn't be done as a caseworker. And so that is when I really you know, changed my mind. I was going into my junior year um, I walked in in September and declared a minor in public policy and kind of changed my entire career trajectory. Um, And I really didn't know where it was going. I just knew I wanted to have my hands on policy somehow. Um, I was really fortunate to be selected for a summer internship to um, write the report that you mentioned earlier, Carrie. Um, And that was just an incredible experience. It was my first time coming to D.C., getting into this, you know, like, the, the nation's hub of policy. This is where I wanted to end up. And I didn't even know that it was coming. So it was just such a surreal experience. Um, and I went home, I worked at the, um, I I'd worked with the organization that I'd actually originally interned with, um, finishing up my BSW. Um, and, I, that's where I served my AmeriCorps term. Uh, I loved it there. I, I loved the people there. And I, again, main, maintained contact with them. I still work with some of uh, the kids I worked with there. Um, but I knew ultimately that my heart wanted to be in D.C. And so this June, I had the opportunity to come back, work with the same organization I was here with last summer and um, support the new year of, uh, interns and policy report writers. And that was an incredible experience aside from being virtual. Um, but what it did lead me to do is it led me to make this move, um, in June rather than August, like I had originally anticipated. And I just jumped right into this whole new life, I think. And so in the moment I was very happy for all the opportunities that were presented to me, but, um, there's a lot of change happening at once. And I think with the pandemic, with um, you know just everything that's gone on this, in the last 10 months, not even gonna say a year, uh, I think we can all relate to how much that change can bring up some discomfort.
0: Well, it's so funny. I know you want to jump in. I think it's really funny though that you talk about this public policy focused, and we have Mairead who studied public policy. Correct, Mairead? Political science. Political science. Okay. Lino, who works for Congress, and myself, who has been in the lobbying world and and work in public policy as well. Um, So we are coming in strong with that focus. But I love what you said about the impact that you could make in public policy versus on the ground as a caseworker. And totally relate because I think that I've heard it said when you're on the ground, you really are making day to day direct contact and can make a difference and see that difference, whether you're interacting with a child or a family, but you can sometimes make a larger impact when you're on the public policy side of things, but you don't always see that impact and it takes a long, long time. Um, So that was interesting to me, but I know Lena wanted to jump in and say something.
1: Well, I mean, I wanted to actually rewind a little bit and ask you because I mean you you did touch upon uh, you know the chaos of making the move and you know um, all the work that you do today and your skill set and I mean I imagine that a lot of that comes from you know your past and growing up. And so I wanted to also, you know, rewind for the audience and kind of, um, and, and ask you a little bit about, you know, where, uh, you know, usually if somebody asks you what your story is, um, you know, sometimes we, we do, I know it's like when you meet somebody for the first time and it's like, Oh, so like, who are you, what do you do? And all that. Right. So you, you hear that part of them. And I feel like the audience has that right now, but I thought some of what they're missing is, you know, where do you come from? You know what are your experiences? What got you here? And so you know, in in a in um you know a snippet or like a snapshot, like you know what's your story um, about where you come from and you know your experience, uh, the journey along the way. Um, we'd love to hear you know a little bit more about that.
3: Um, well, I just wanted to say that I I think it's really admirable and c- powerful in a way that you started wanting to work directly with the kids that's where your passion was but then you you know yourself and you know that you can work even harder than that and so you chose to take it to the next level
2: yeah so I I definitely think um, there were so many factors that played into the decision I have ultimately made and I just mean to this point because a month from now I could want to go somewhere else and that's kind of the beauty of you know, the world we live in is that we have the freedom to change the work and, you know, to follow our passions and the things that are going to make us happy. Um, and so I've been really, really happy to, uh, and just overwhelmed almost, um, to be able to do that. But one of those things, um, to start is, you know, school in general, I was in a very, um, a very caseworker-driven program. And so I saw that there were wonderful people and wonderful social workers and determined students who were going to be these caseworkers that I had, um, that others that I knew had, and we need those people on the ground. And I just, I could acknowledge that there were people out there. Um, and there were also people that were gonna work in the direction I was too. And so I was really, really fortunate of that. but. One of the big parts that I think I've shared on a few other episodes and at other speaking engagements that I do is, I struggled the most with my trauma when I was in college um, and in the later years of my life, and so truthfully, I think part of moving to a policy lens was a defense mechanism and was me acknowledging that it may not be best for me to be on the ground. Um, It may not be the best place for me because of the things that I've already seen and the feelings that it could potentially turn up again. Um, So my, my story through college, I, or my story in general um, started From a very young age, uh, my mom had used for a great deal of my life um, and for most of the time that I can remember, um, you know, in and out of different situations I wish I wasn't in um, and accompanied by my little sister. So not only was I uncomfortable, but um, I was pushing that down to make sure that my sister was protected for a lot of it. Uh, And that ultimately came to an end when I was in the fourth grade. Um, My parents' rights were officially terminated, and I was placed into a kin placement uh, with my aunt and uncle. I'm so grateful and and fortunate that my aunt and uncle were um, in the position that they were in to, you know, take us into their home, but it didn't happen right away, and there was a lot of question about whether it could happen. My aunt and uncle had already taken in um, a set of children from my father's first marriage, Um, they had already had four kids of their own. And so now my sister and I were going to be seven and eight, uh, not to mention that their kids are mostly 20 years older than my sister and I. So they're now raising a third generation of children. Um, which is a lot for anyone, I would say, uh, especially when it's an unexpected, um, and it's not something that they sought out to do. So, that was there was a lot of questions about um would we move to Vermont with my mom's brother would we stay local with my dad's sister ultimately who I live with um or would we be split up uh and enter the foster care system because that's you know the harsh reality of most siblings entering um or at least it was at that point uh and so we this was very transparent to me and it's something that sticks out in my memory is this was communicated to me at 10 years old that these are all your options, but one of them is obviously worse than the other. Um, And it was my brother who was already living with my aunt and uncle who stepped up and said, please don't let my sisters go into that system. And that's who really... Um, you know, pulled the strings for us and my, my aunt and uncle fought through and it was hard. And um, I always say, it feels like I have six parents because they are so much older than me. And it was always checking in and who's picking you up from school today, because there were so many adults in the home to be able to share that role. Um, But I would never change that. And it was never a quiet home. And there was always somebody to talk to or something to do. uh, And it was always a full house. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where, um, you know, that led me to at this point. And just
0: for our listeners, Raya, I just want to let them know if they haven't heard of Ken or Kinship Care, that it is a form of foster care where a child is taken in by their family members. And in your case, it was your aunt and uncle who stepped up to take you in. Um, and you just have such a strong story of sibling connection. It's really beautiful, Raya.
1: And actually, something I wanted to ask you is because you know, um, as I've gotten to know you, I've seen the you know the parental type figure that you are, and so given this you know description that you have, all these siblings, that too many parents in the house, like you know how did all these like different parenting, I guess. Um, head's butt and like, what was that like the relationships? Because there was a lot of different relationships, you know, the differences between, you know, your siblings kind of parenting versus, you know, the kinship family parenting versus biological and so on and so forth. So like how, how were some of those relationships?
2: Yeah, it was definitely, um, a mix. Uh, I think I know, I always knew who to call in what situation. Um, a prime example is I always knew to call my cousin, um, and eventually adopted sister, Jen, whenever I wanted to come home from school, (laughs) she would always (laughs) sign me out. Um, Justine was always more of my emotional outlet. She, um, her and I spent a lot of my childhood together. She was my cheerleading coach for a long time throughout my life. Um, But at the end of the day, my parents um, had the end all be all, right? So whatever they said, they kind of dictated down the totem pole um, to the siblings. And then the siblings kind of dictated to us. Um, But again, I I always knew who to call for what, for the most part. Um, If I wanted to order food, I usually hit my brother up because he's always down for that kind of stuff. So um, you just kind of learn everybody's little niches and (laughs) navigate it that
3: way, I'd say. Do you think that... um I just, do you think that it was interesting that your, your parents now knew your former parents? Like what is your relationship with your parents like knowing that they knew your biological parents? Because I feel like that is, can be, I don't know a sensitive subject, at least with my adoptive parents. Like I would not want them to know my biological parents.
2: Yeah, it was tough. And I think, um, so for my adopted mom, who is my, my bio dad's sister, she had already picked up the slack for lack of a better phrase. Um, when he dropped the ball parenting the first time, um, my, my dad had four kids before having my sister and I, um, and my aunts and uncles as a collective, um, took care of those children ultimately from a very young age for all of them. Um, my brother was nine months old when he left my dad's custody. So for us to walk into the same situation, a lot of the hesitation was my mom saying, I, I don't want to do this again. Um, how could he do this again more so? Um, and so in the beginning, um, and this is something I've also shared, is um, I do not have a current relationship with my bio parents. Um, and I've made that clear to my family and to those around me that I did not want that relationship. Um, and that was always something that came from me and not from anybody else. And that's something I, I stand by. Um, and I'm very happy and proud of my family for not pushing me in a direction that I wasn't comfortable with. Um, And so in the beginning, my my adopted parents did not have a relationship with them. They didn't maintain um, any contact with them for the most part. Um, They were, in a sense, just as angry, frustrated, and upset as we were. Um, And so if they did talk, it really wasn't around us. As I got older, um, and I think this kind of aligns with my experience in college, my my grandmothers got sick um, and this meant that, you know, families recommunicates. Um, my grandmother at one point wanted a birthday party but wouldn't, wouldn't go to her own birthday party if all of her children couldn't be together. Um, and that was hard because for the first time in my life I was presented with the idea of seeing my dad again. Uh, and I was 18 and that was something really hard for me to think about, I think so. Um, that time eventually came when I was a junior in college. Uh, both my grandmothers passed away 10 days apart and their services followed shortly after. And so for the first time in, uh, 12 years, I saw both my bio mom and my bio dad. Um, and to speak to that relationship, my, there is no biological relationship between my adopted family and my biological mom. So at, at, my biological, my maternal grandmother's service, her mom, um, everybody was on my side, so to speak. Um, everybody was protecting me because they didn't have any relationship with her. And fast forward a few months to being at my paternal grandmother's service, I am now with and living with my dad's side of the family. And so it's inevitable that my dad and his sister are going to talk um, you know, my dad and his brother-in-law are going to talk. And so my adopted parents were actively engaging with him. Um, and so were the other parts of my family. And so at that service, I did feel just in a completely different position. Um, not so protected, not so, um, I think just overall more vulnerable, but, uh, overall over my childhood and over time, um, it's, never been a relationship that they pushed on me. Um, They've always given me the opportunity to say, yes, I want to see them. No, I do not. Um, And have really never influenced me either way. And so I am so grateful to them for that.
0: This This is a more vulnerable question. So don't feel like you need to answer it, but have you forgiven your parents, your biological parents for everything that's happened or where do you stand in terms of that piece of your relationship with them?
2: It's a great question. Um, And I think I've asked myself the same question a lot. And um, most of the time I turn up without an answer. And I think that's for one, because in college, when I started having the experiences of alcohol, drugs, um, you know, friends doing the things that people do in college, um, stepping up to that parental role, as Lino mentioned, um, to take care of them. I was reminded of all the really horrible things that they did um, and that they did in front of me. And I, for the first time, started to feel a lot of anger. But then seeing them in person, um, I, you know, the best example of this is I heard my mom's voice for the first time in 12 years. And I genuinely had no idea what she sounded like.
3: It was unrecognizable to me. Really? You didn't have like a flush uh, or a f- you weren't overwhelmed with like memories. It was just a foreign voice to you? Absolutely. Wow. It, there was
2: nothing there. And it was in that moment that I stepped back and said, I just don't know them. I know what, I know what happened. I have these memories. But as people, I just don't know them. Um, the question I face a lot more now is, do I want to, what is the benefit of getting to know them? Um, in terms of getting to know myself, I think, uh, that's what I struggled with the most is understanding myself as somebody who is raised for 10 years by two people and then totally jumped to a new set of individuals. Um, I think a lot of my formative years were with them. And so I wonder if I came to be from some of the qualities that they have, um, but I wonder if that's information that's necessary to me. Uh, and so I think that's more the question that I face now rather than forgiveness. Yeah.
3: Well, I feel like. Thanks for sharing that, Raya. Yeah. It's just uh, when you're talking, it makes me, it, it just makes sense because when you're a kid, you don't necessarily know what's going on or you don't really have as much control. And then when you're an adult, you kind of look back on where you came from and you can see it all from a different perspective. And I think it's powerful that you're making your own decisions. Um, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. And that's what I love about Foster Strong is that we have this like similar thread um, of foster care, but we're all so different and we have all had different stories and we make different decisions on how we want to move forward.
1: Before we before we even like, you know, transition or anything like that, there was actually another thing that I want to ask. And uh, that's... Um, you know what? Do you, what do you tell people out there that are kind of in a similar position where uh, they have the opportunity to explore a relationship that is estranged? Um, and you know, in some of that, like what kind of guidance or um, questions, or do you do you think that uh, other people in your situation uh, might benefit from, given you know the 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 difficulty of what's the risk, uh, what's the benefit, what's the cost? Uh, so some of those thoughts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time, I would say analyzing or overanalyzing this question, um, but at no point have I come to a 100% conclusion. Um, and that's, and I'm not talking about the overall idea of building a relationship, but just the idea of something as small as having coffee. I have never been able to sit down and say, "I would be totally okay having coffee with them." And until that, for me anyway, um, and you know, for what I would hope um, to share with others, is that until you feel hundred percent certain that that's something you want to do, um, then you know take the time to figure it out um, and take the time to really understand you know, the motives behind you doing, uh, this action or meeting this person. Um, and you know, one thing that carried with me for a long time was there are questions that I want to ask that I just don't know if they'll ever have the answers to or anybody will. Um, and so am I seeking this relationship to get these answers to the hard questions that they may not have, or am I seeking them for other reasons? Um, an example um, is my sister was faced with the opportunity to have dinner with my dad, and she did. Um, and I, I don't think that her experience was what she anticipated. Um, she, my my adopted parents were also with them. It wasn't just a one-on-one thing. But um, you know, that it, it was kind of like he walked in the room as if he was out to a normal dinner with somebody who was a cousin who we'd seen for the first time in a few years. There wasn't, um, that apology. There wasn't the conversation. Um, and so do, do I think that the setting was a hundred percent appropriate? Maybe not. Um, but do I think maybe she went in with expectations of something different? Absolutely. Um, but she ultimately, she came out of it with a really solid, um, support system and people to come back to and, um, you know, conversations to be had. And so the other thing I would say is if you are up for, um, you know, challenging yourself and seeking kind of those feelings in the moment and and committing to these actions, just ensure that you have the people to support you when you get back um, for the good and the bad, really, because we just don't know what's to come of it. (laughs) Well, and I think what you
0: said about your own litmus test of what I want to sit down for coffee with this person, what stood out to me is the word want and thinking about It truly is what you want. You should not feel pressured to restore any estranged relationship. You should not do it because someone else is recommending you do. It truly has to be your own want and your own motivation to go. Like no one should be forced into that type of situation. Um, And I think like setting what you were saying about your sister and having different expectations, it just drives home the importance of communicating sort of what you hope to get out of it, what your boundaries are up front, because certainly our expectations cannot match the situation and we can be left really disappointed in the end and hurt and then struggling to maintain any sort of boundaries after that initial contact has been made.
3: But I feel like, oh, I was just gonna say, I feel like it's, it's hard At the same time, to like, I know to get your hopes up or expectations, but if you're meeting your parents, it's kind of hard for them. Or hold on, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that if you're if you're seeing your parents, it's hard not to expect them to act like parents. Um, Like you know, you like if you're meeting with your parents, you want them to be your parents. You don't want a distant cousin. So. Or something like that? Well, I think it depends. I think it depends. Because, like, in
0: my situation, I the last time I saw my birth mom was when I was five. And then when I met up with her again, when I was 21, I didn't want her to just treat me like a parent because she had been a stranger to me for 15 years. And so when she tried to, you know, pull me in for a hug, that felt like a stranger yeah, coming up to me in the sense. grocery store and hugging me. And that felt like, whoa, like, what are you doing? I haven't seen you in 15 years. So I think all of the situations are different for everyone. Everyone's circumstance looks different, what their expectations are, are different, but communicating them helps.
2: No, I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, the biggest takeaway of trying to develop these relationships is developing them really on your own terms. And um, if you are seeking them to come into them with, like, I have this conversation with myself sometimes when I daydream, I guess, about what it would be like to meet them. Um, And a lot of the reservation is that I would want to have some conversation with them about you're not coming into this um, to fulfill a new, a fulfill an already filled role in my life. Um, You're, you're coming into this simply to get to know who I am as an individual. And I want to know who you are as an individual. Um, And I'm very confident that I can communicate that. um, But I'm not confident that it would be well received on both ends. Um, And so that's where my reservation is, is do I know that they could walk into this situation um, and, you know, fulfill my expectations of what I'm, what I'm looking for. Um, and this really comes from the last time that I did see them. Um, I had an experience where my, my mom chased me around the service, um, and followed me around the entire time while grieving my grandmother to try to get my attention and talk to me. Um, and I just couldn't help, but feel like this wasn't the time, the place, um, and nor her role in my life to be comforting me in this situation. And so, I don't know. I just feel like if a memorial service isn't enough of a hint not to do that, I don't know how much more I have to communicate um, where where she kind of stands in that. And so that's where my reservation is.
1: Yeah, I. I it was kind of a a leading question when I asked it, because I, I could kind of see where you were going with it. Um, really uh, I think it's just really important because so many of us find ourselves in these situations uh, especially when the, you know, your family just doesn't look like a traditional family in the most basic sense. And so societal expectations, right. You know, this constant narrative that a family looks like this and it acts like this and it is everything. And, you know, it goes family, friends, and, you know, whatever in that order, as in like in that order of importance, something like that. And, um, and so I, I want to stress to everybody that, you know, family is kind of that it doesn't have to look and feel the same for everybody. But one thing that I've seen and amidst all of this is that it's like safety, it's comfort, it's on your own terms um, that these expectations that we have and we bring into um, these meetings is is what we really have to battle. It's like, that's half the battle is just our own internal expectations of what we're trying to get out of these meetings. Um, but I would say that, you know, to everybody out there, if you are considering some of these things, uh, that family, you know, that, that you have to also deal with the expectations uh, when you meet with those person, like what are their expectations of me and how is that going to activate me and trigger me? So I feel like that's something that that y'all speak on, on that, like when they come to the table and they, they're like, you know, approach you and they go in to hug you and you're like, I barely know you. I, be, like, I barely remember your voice kind of a thing. Like, and here you are like kind of treating me as if I'm some, as if we've always known each other. And I find myself that when I re- reconnect with a uh, new family that it's strange. It's like, I've never met you. And and then you're telling you telling me you love me and all these things and I'm like wow oh, you know so I just want to stress out there to everybody that like it's you can with time and patience there's no rush kind of a thing.
0: Well, and boundaries are so important, and we talk about this on the boundaries episode, and Raya does an excellent job of <laughs> setting an example for how you can set boundaries with family, but that is a great episode to listen to if you are considering how to navigate meeting up with family and you're out there listening. Um, I do think, right, you have, when you speak out your story, it just sounds like you've done a lot of work. You've done a lot of self-reflection on it. And you have been in all of these different advocacy spaces where you're telling your story again and again and again for you, what was the moment and where did you pivot from, okay, I've experienced all of this to now I'm ready to tell my story, to advocate on behalf of other kids and families and um, started to get just entrenched in all of the child welfare spaces that you've been involved in?
2: It's actually funny. Um, for two reasons, I guess. Um, One is, um, for anybody who's big into personality traits, I am an INFJ, which is the advocate personality type. Um, (laughs) Myers-Briggs. Yes, my Myers-Briggs. And so, I have very distinct memories of, uh, I was adopted July 31st, 2008. I started a new school year with a new last name and had a lot of explaining to do because fourth graders don't get married. <laughs> and um, a lot of questions came because back then you used to sit in your desks in alphabetical order. And uh, I went to a relatively small school. And um, I remember specifically sitting next to one individual, always on their right. And I'd now moved to their left because my last name started with an F, now it starts with an E. Um, and so I, I kind of moved a seat, and there were all these questions and I just flat out said it. I said, oh, I was adopted this summer because my parents did drugs. And in that moment, I was like, well, if I tell all these kids about it, maybe they won't grow up and do drugs. Um, like, and I'm just thinking about what a ridiculous thing. No, that is so cool <laughs> to go that back you to owned it. My teachers are probably so concerned.
0: uh. Um, also, no, like I won my dare essay because I wrote about how my parents were addicts, and I won the dare essay. So I skipped a lot of dare because I was in school therapy. <laughs> oh, foster care life, gotta love it. Um, so there is power in telling kids, "Hey, don't do drugs, or you may end up like my parents." Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love a good trauma joke.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was. Um, so I guess that was my OG uh, advocacy days. I love it. I. Grew grew up and I I had a lot of these, um, you know, guest speakers and um, former athletes and things come into my high school. Um, I remember writing my college essay on the idea that I would go to school to be a social worker and I would minor in public, pol- in, um, sorry, public speaking. And I would go and I would continue doing this kind of speaking. And it was something so abstract. I didn't even know that, that like, if that was a thing or if that was something I could do. Because again, I saw these athletes and all these former famous people um, coming into my school. And I was just this person who was like, I want to talk. <laughs> um, and, you know, then I guess just kind of throughout college, it just moved forward. And, um, you know, I was, I was in a, a foster youth scholar program, um, where I received a scholarship through my state, um, and they had opened up some speaking opportunities and that's where it started. And then, um, you know, coming to DC and moving into these other roles. Um, and now here at Foster Strong and one, I didn't need to minor in public speaking, um, side note. Uh, but two, I just, um, it flowed in a way that I just really never could have imagined.
1: So I love that like we're talking about all this like stuff that like you've had, these like character traits that kind of, you've had since a young age. just like OG advocate, <laughs> you know, uh, two-year peers speaking, right? And here we are now, like now speaking and with the aim of speaking to our peers, and um, people who have experienced what we have. Uh, I'm curious to ask you our standing segment question, which is, you know, what does being foster strong mean to you?
2: Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I so I um, referencing my college essay, which I talked a little bit about. Um, I you know wrote that about my story and what I wanted to do with it, um, and I titled that essay. And then I actually got the essay, that title tattooed on my body um, as my first tattoo when I turned eighteen, and that reads, "Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt." Um, and I think that's just something that carries me through, um, and has carried me through to foster strong and that I hope we can portray to others is that being in foster care in a a way, in many ways, in however you want to see it made me who I am. Um, there are tons of things that contribute to that, but at the end of the day, these experiences who some respond to me and say, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you went through all of this are what made me um, and are, are what made me this advocate Are what made me this individual. Um, and just overall, I, I, you know, that's just what, um, what brings me to the table is just everything that I've carried on my back from then to now um, is just who I am. And it's what I have to bring to the table. And that's all I can do for everyone. Tell us the quote one more time. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Okay, question.
0: Obviously, I love your tattoo and tattoos are so personal and have a different meaning for every person except for the people that get like mom tattooed on their butts. (laughs) But um, maybe that's personal too, I don't know. Um, But Raya, do you think that that nothing hurt piece is true?
2: I think um, we have to allow it to hurt most of the time to see its beauty. Um, And I, the reason I have it, the reason I use it, the reason I stand by it is because I fought really hard to recognize that pain and to see it as beauty. And it's a reminder to continue to do that with, with my trauma, with smaller things that happen in life, with all the situations that I face is that it's, a, I would say a step beyond this too shall pass, um, in the sense that it does become beautiful on the other side. Mm,
0: mm, that's that is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> and that is foster strong. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> well, man, I like I'm speechless. Uh, first off, uh, and I just want to say thank you for sharing all of that, and thank you for you know just letting us in and really allowing us the chance to see you for you, uh, all the things that you've been through, everything. And just be also for being very candid and being able to speak on you know, vulnerable questions in this platform where you know, it's going to be out there. And so for everybody, if you want to hear more from Raya and you want to hear more about what's going on, you can you know, follow her on Instagram at uh, Raya underscore Steve's one, uh, and, or you can you know check us out on at urfosterstrong.org dot uh, org. She has some videos on there, uh, speaking a little bit more on this. And feel free to reach out as well. We're all pretty well uh, responsive, and I know Raya's you know always ready to kind of speak on any of these issues at you know the drop of a pin. So uh, thanks for for listening, and you know coming back next week.
0: See y'all later. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Raya.